welcome to Crimes and Cocktails, a podcast where we explore true crime while drinking a customized cocktail created by us, your bartenders. Hey, I'm Tabitha. And I'm Katie. Just a quick heads up, this show contains sensitive and graphic material that might not be for everyone. If you don't enjoy in-depth true crime, humor about true crime, and drinking, please don't continue. We want to be respectful of the victims in these crimes, but as for the criminal, we don't give a shit. This is episode two of our series on the Golden State Killer. Today we're going to discuss his time as the original Night Stalker up until his crimes abruptly stopped. And we're still drinking the same cocktail, um, the Golden State Chiller. You can find it on our Instagram at Crimes and Cocktails. But today we decided instead of the blackberries to add in strawberries. And I'd have to say I kind of think I like it. Maybe a little bit more. <laughs> so do I. Um, so feel free to change it up to strawberries if you prefer or, you know, kind of whatever berry you want. It's kind of like a, almost like a mojito, but not because it's got the bourbon. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. Definitely. All right. So if you remember from episode one, we left off with D'Angelo's first attempt at a murder and rape in Goleta, California. A few months later, he would commit his first premeditated murder just a few blocks away. I say premeditated murder because if you remember, he had already committed three murders, which was uh, Claude Snelling, who he had shot while attempting to kidnap Beth in Visalia, and Brian and Katie Maggiore, whom he killed when he caught him uh, prowling in the neighborhood in Rancho Cordova. Yeah, and actually, so we left off with the attempted rape in Goleta, California, that I think happened in September. But was it September? Yeah, September Sunday night. Or no, October. It happened in October. But actually, um, I read this earlier today that, so yeah, the, the attempted rape happened in October, but there was actually a report of a prowler walking in the neighborhood the month before in September of 1979. And I guess a man and his dog were taking a walk in the neighborhood and the dog was off his leash and got ahead of him. And then he didn't see his dog, and then he heard, like, some yelping. And when he finally caught up to his dog, the dog had been severely cut up and slashed. (laughs) Don't worry, the dog survived, Um, but the dog needed 70 stitches. Uh, Police think later that D'Angelo was probably the guy who did that and was walking around planning his next attack and scoping out the area when the dog approached him. And he didn't have his dog repellent, apparently. (laughs) I guess not. I don't know why, but he must have really not liked dogs because to be wearing dog repellent like that and then just to have these interactions with them, that was... (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Anyways, let's start with the first um, murder that happened. um, So this happened in December 1979. So if we look at the timeline and... Uh, September he was prowling in October he tries to attack the first couple and they successfully get away and then in December on Sunday December 30th 1979 at Avenida Pequena Avenue in Goleta California in Santa Barbara County which if you guys don't know where Goleta is um, in Santa Barbara area it's on the coastal southern um, side of California it's not it's before you get to LA it's definitely more of like a quieter town. I think I was looking at the um, population of this time, and it was similar to like Vesalia. It was around like 20 or so thousand people at this time, and I think it's still actually around that number. 
Um, Dr. Alexandria Manning, a clinical psychologist, and her boyfriend, Dr. Robert Offerman, an orthopedic surgeon, were shot to death in Offerman's condo. The condo next door was empty, and D'Angelo broke in through a window waiting inside until Manning and Offerman turned off their lights. He left the empty condo and pried open their back sliding glass door. Instead of shoelaces, he brought white twine with him. Offerman and Manning were asleep in their bed, and D'Angelo entered their bedroom. He must have been standing in the doorway and not at the end of their bed when he woke them up because Manning had time to slip her jewelry behind the bed. D'Angelo made Manning tie Offerman up, and then he tied up Manning and Offerman's ankles. Offerman was able to get free and got up, lunging at D'Angelo, who shot Offerman once in the chest, then three times in the back. He then shot Manning in the back of the head, execution style. Both were shot with a 38 revolver. Neighbors heard the shots around 3 a.m., but assumed they were firecrackers for New Year's, so nobody called the police. The next morning, a friend came over to keep a tennis date with the couple, but when no one answered the door, they called the police. Offerman was found on the bedroom floor naked with twine still around his left wrist, and Manning was found face down in the bed, hands tied behind her back. All the lights and the thermostat were turned off, and size 9 Adidas runner shoe prints were found in the backyard that matched the prints under the condo next door's windows, and prints from the three-toed from a three-toed dog were found next to them, which uh, is kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> They're not sure if it was a dog that he had with him and then later, like, killed, or if it was afterwards a dog came over, um, but they had the prints there. Was it the dog from earlier trying to get revenge? <laughs> I wouldn't blame it. <laughs> Anyways, a bag of turkey and bones was found on their back porch, which I don't know if he brought a snack. It's kind of weird. Um, or maybe it was for the dog. I don't know. <laughs> the same prints were found at a nearby neighbor's house after they reported their son's bike stolen. So again, he's stealing bikes. The night before the murders, there was a string of burglaries throughout the neighborhood, and one family came home to see someone run past their front window from the inside. And when they entered, they found their little poodle beaten to death. So what police assumed at the time that was a botched robbery but as we now know, was most likely D'Angelo planning to murder and rape. But he didn't expect Offerman to fight back, and he ended up killing them both probably abruptly. I think we see this with um, serial killers when they start to progress. Um, the last, I think, I think that he kind of got aroused in the last attempt um, attack when he was probably getting to that point to think like he's going to kill them but mm -hmm. he obviously didn't get to because they escaped so with this one I think he wanted to probably do his normal routine where he is going to tie them up you know in the way he has normally done it right and he hasn't had people that have really fought back a whole lot and he's had the woman tie the man up, and then he ties the woman up, and he rapes them, and he probably was going to kill them after that. But as we see progressing here, he was anticipating for Offerman to fight back like that. So as you see progressing here, I think he's starting to anticipate that the male's going to fight back. And Yeah, yeah. So at this, uh, when they found their bodies, Manning hadn't been raped. So it was, he kind of made a, a quick getaway. 
Um, also here, not everything was um, as disturbed as it has been in the past. Because he didn't have the he time. He didn't have the time to ransack through yeah. everything. I think because he had to shoot Offerman like that, I mean, he didn't have to, obviously. <laughs> you don't have to do that. Please don't do that. If you're listening, don't do that. <laughs> yes. But um, because he felt like this is getting out of control, so he, he shoots him, and then he's like, shit, I just set off, like, how many dogs, you know, like, out here barking yeah. and stuff because of So he shoots, you know, um, the woman and then figures he needs to get the heck out of there. When normally in the EAR cases... A lot of detectives thought it was so unusual because he'd be in the house for hours. He wouldn't just go in there and do the deed and then leave. He would be in there hanging around, eating some food, having some beers, messing stuff around. And like this one, I mean, he he probably was planning on doing that. Brought himself a sack of lunch. Okay. On March 13th, 1980, on High Point Drive in Ventura, California, which is Southern California, Lyman and Charlene Smith were killed in their home. Lyman was a former district attorney who was expected to be made a judge by California Governor Jerry Brown, and Charlene was his wife and former secretary. Lyman was found naked, lying face down on the right side of the bed. Both of his hands and feet had been bound. Charlene was found nude from the waist down, lying face up with hands bound behind her back. Her ankles were also bound. The victims died as a result of blows inflicted on their head, um, actually by a wood log that D'Angelo had found from a firewood pile outside of the home. So he just basically, this will do, picked something up, and then entered the house. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Charlene had been raped, and it was DNA swabbed from her body that helped catch D'Angelo later on. Uh, Three days later, Gary Smith, who was actually uh, Lyman's 12-year-old son from a previous marriage, came over to mow the lawn. He tried to get into the garage, but it was locked, and he thought that was pretty weird because there were gardeners already working in the backyard, and his stepmom usually left the garage door unlocked for him. He knocked on the door, and there was no answer. He then tried the door and found it unlocked, which was also strange. They typically had it locked. Um, As soon as he walked in, he saw that the living room couch had been disturbed. All the pillows were pulled out and thrown around. And then he heard a noise coming from down the hall. So he followed it into the master bedroom, and it was an alarm clock going off. He could see that there were two figures under a blanket in bed, and then noticed when he got closer that there was blood on the blankets. You know, so real quick, um, I actually didn't know that the son was 12 years old when he found them, which is terrible, but... I was listening to something and they were saying, um, oh, it was the, one of the sister, the sister of the 12 year old um, brother. And she's like, mm-hmm. yeah, my, my brother went there and he thought it was weird that their alarm was going off and he didn't know mm-hmm. why they weren't waking up. And so he went and turned the alarm off and he's like, they're still not waking up. That's so weird. But the, the boy, the son was in his mind was like, I don't want to wake them up if they're trying to sleep in kind of a thing it wasn't until you know he uncovered the blanket that yeah, discovered that and I kept thinking well how the heck does he not know something's wrong but now that he's I'm hearing yeah he's 12 years old I mean I don't yeah that, that's, that's so terrible that's god terrifying to be found by your 12 year old son um you know he's just expecting to come over and mow the lawn and then un- uncovers this scene So he actually pulled the blanket up, and then he saw that his father and his stepmother were underneath. Um, The entire room was also ransacked, drawers pulled out, clothes scattered everywhere, which was pretty common for one of D'Angelo's scenes. 
Uh, you called the police, and when they showed, they showed up, they found the bloodstained log that was on the bedspread at the foot of the bed, and there was bark on the floor, so pieces of the um, log had come off and was on the floor. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually read in one of the reports that they found a piece of wood between her legs. Yeah. So, like, her legs were, you know, spread open while mm-hmm. he was beating her from above. Mm-hmm. It was uh, definitely a brutal way to, to go. Uh, Lyman's business partner, Joe Alslip, was suspected, and glassware was found in the home with his fingerprints um, at the residence. So um, he must have been over there drinking and right before the crime. Um, you know, I don't know if it you know, the night of or beforehand. So he was, he was a suspect. He was arrested, and he was actually charged after his pastor said he confessed during a private counseling session. Um, I don't know if Elslip actually outright said something or maybe he felt guilty about being over there. And then afterwards, you know, his business partner and his wife were murdered, but DNA didn't match him. And in 1997, he was cleared. That's so weird. I mean, that that's really weird that he would even say something like that. Yeah. But I mean, I know the mind goes through weird things like, did I do this somehow? You know, mm-hmm. or I don't know, or... Maybe he just feels guilty for something else, and just it's it's really weird. Yeah, it was it was strange, but you know, yeah, the DNA. Um, his next uh, murder victims, um, and we're calling it victim number five and, and number six. I'm not calling them, but his fifth and sixth victim in the ONS cases was on August 19th in 1980 on Cockleshell Drive in Dana Point, California. Now Dana Point. Is really far south so it's kind of weird that these are just so all over the place I looked it up um, from Goleta to Dana Point it's about a two and a half hour drive it's 165 miles yeah which is just kind of bizarre to drive that far south mm-hmm. um, which is you know kind of why there were so many weird theories about what does this guy do for a living and stuff which we'll get into you know later but um, in Dana Point, couple Patrice Harrington, 28 years old, and Keith Harrington, who's 24 years old, were found both found murdered. Um, the home was in a gated community owned by Keith's father, Roger. Keith was a medical student at UC Irvine, and Patrice, who's known by Patty, was a nurse. Both were bludgeoned to death in the head by an unknown blunt force object and were lying face down and had been completely covered with bedding, just like the Smiths. Keith was naked while Patrice was only wearing a short white terry cloth robe. Binding marks were present on both of the victim's wrists and on Patrice's ankles. Evidence that Patrice had been raped was there. <clears throat> the binding material had been removed, presumably by D'Angelo, prior to the bodies being found. Semen on Patrice's body was taken as DNA evidence. And their bodies were found the next uh, two days later, actually, on August 21st by Roger Harrington, who had been previously invited over for dinner. Um, and, I, and I actually want to say this is something kind of weird and, and a similarity in these murder cases is mm-hmm. that after he commits these crimes, he's covering them up. But yeah, with the bedding. Yeah, which in, you know, a lot of people say that that is like a sign of shame. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know that that's just it's kind of weird which you think that someone that was a serial rapist though 
wouldn't even know what shame is. I mean, he's yeah. a psychopath and he is raping women and letting them live with this terror for the rest of their life. But then he's committing these murders and he's covering them up. Mm-hmm. It's it's really bizarre. So an interesting fact is uh, Bruce Harrington, who is Keith's brother, was extremely involved with the research and funding of California's Prop 69, which required DNA samples from all felony arrests in the state, um, as well as some misdemeanors. So Prop 69 was passed in 2004 and was crucial to expand and modify state law regarding the collection and use of um, criminal offender DNA samples and palm print impressions. Uh, Bruce had been involved with the prop since uh, the 1990s when DNA became available um, in crime uh, research and solving. So I think it's pretty cool that he was involved in getting that created and passed and then later it helped actually solve his brother's murder. That's great, that's great. All right, so next we're gonna go to victim seven. Um, This happened in February, um, February 5th, 1981 on um, 35 Columbus Street in Irvine, California, which is in Orange County. So 28-year-old Manuela (laughs) Witten was raped and murdered. Manuel worked as a teller handling auto loans for the airport branch of the California First National Bank in Irvine. Her husband, David, was uh, in the hospital being treated for a viral infection at the time of her murder and was not home when the homicide homicide occurred. So Manu- uh, Manuela was found dressed in a bathrobe, partially wrapped in a sleeping bag. She had received multiple blows to the back of her head. Binding marks were found around both her wrists and ankles, but again, the bindings were missing. She was bruised, and it looked like D'Angelo had punched her, and there were cuts on her face around the mouth. And real quick, um, I was listening to an interview, and I don't know if you're wondering, but I was kind of like, why a sleeping bag? That's weird. Apparently, Manuela used to use this, you know, it was like her favorite sleeping bag slash favorite blanket that she would often use when she felt a little bit chilly. So it was probably just laying around in the room, Mm -hmm. like an extra blanket, basically. And then he used it to cover up again, like you were saying, with the bedding. Right. Uh, so the next day, her husband, David, was trying to reach her, but he couldn't, so he called her parents to go check on her. Her mother, Ruth, went to the house, and she discovered her daughter's body. The house was in disarray. The TV had been taken out of the house and moved to the backyard and, like, so propped weird. against the fence. Um, and uh, some small items, like a couple of rings, were taken. It was obvious to police that the intruder had come with the intent to murder, but had made the scene look like a burglary gone wrong. Uh, So suspicion actually fell on her husband, David. So even though he had been in the hospital, um, they thought that maybe he had played a hand in it, maybe hired somebody. Um, But when DNA was linked to the East Area Rapist in 1997, the suspicion finally moved away from David, but he yeah. actually died shortly after. Yeah, and I um, there was an interview with his brother, and his brother was saying um, that he remembers talking to, to David, and David was just like, they think I did it, they think I did it. Um, and his brother, you know, said that David just he couldn't get over that. He couldn't get over the fact that people thought that he did it and over the fact that if he was there, maybe things would have ended differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm... I'm pretty sure that I read that David ended up medicating, self-medicating himself with like drugs and alcohol because he just was to get over that guilt. Yeah, it was just 
guilt and depression and just yeah yeah when everybody thinks you killed your wife and you're trying to prove that you didn't but there's not really a way or just to think even you know what if i was there you know Mm -hmm. maybe this wouldn't have happened i could have protected her somehow yeah which we know that that probably wouldn't have mattered yeah he probably would have been dead as well yeah so victims um, eight and nine happened in July, um, July 27th, 1981. It was a Sunday. And we're back in Goleta, California. Favorite um, spot for him, I guess. Yeah. So it was a half mile from the previous site in Goleta. So, you know, he's still working in these small areas. Um, the victims were Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez. Uh, Domingo was 35 and Sanchez was 27. Both were found dead in the master bedroom of 449 Taltec Way. Unfortunately, both of these murders were a wrong place, wrong time sort of crime. Sherry had agreed to house sit the home as the owner um, had passed away and a friend was trying to sell the house. So Sherry temporarily moved her things into the home and been living there for about six weeks. Her on and off again boyfriend Greg was visiting at the time of the murder. They were both discovered the next day by the realtor who came with potential buyers to look at the house. Later, the realtor said that one of the open houses, in one of the open houses, she noticed a man messing around with the windows and doors. It was thought that perhaps he visited the homes during the open houses to plan out his point of entry for these attacks. Yeah, actually, one of the theories was that he, that the Golden State Killer was a realtor um, because a couple of these homes that he does do commit these murders at were on the market and i just think that's so eerie you know he probably Mm -hmm. saw this house is for sale people are still living here goes in there checks it out again planning carefully planning his attack deciding you know this window i can get in this window i can't get in is this um house close to a an adequate escape route is it not so creepy yeah So unlike previous cases, both of them were not tied up. Greg was found naked, lying face down on the floor, partially in the bedroom closet. He had one non-fatal gunshot wound that had entered through his left cheek. Evidence revealed that he was shot while on his knees and had received 24 blows to the head with an unknown weapon. After receiving the blows, his head had been covered up with clothing that was from the closet. We estimate that Greg was shot around 3.25 a.m. because a neighbor heard a gunshot and several dogs started barking in the neighborhood for about 45 minutes. Which is kind of weird that the police weren't called. Um, I don't know. I just think that's so weird. That, and you have dogs barking like that for 45 minutes and this guy is still like in yeah. the home doing something. So last time when neighbors heard gunshot with, you know, the Smiths, they didn't call because they thought maybe, oh, it's, you know, around New Year's, New Year's fireworks. Yeah. You know, this happened in July. So um, like later July. So I don't know if they thought maybe, oh, somebody's still celebrating Fourth of July this late or what. But um, also it said that Greg was found nude. And this was something that we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. is a lot of the men are found naked in these yeah. murder scenes. And I know that I was reading some article where Greg and sherry were actually broken up at this time so they were you know they dated they'd break up they dated they break up but they're actually broken up and apparently they were just really good friends right now and i don't know why he was over visiting but it a lot of people were thinking like i don't think they were an item or doing anything so i don't know if 
he was making these men remove their mm-hmm. clothing before I feel killing like them. There's too many in a row where the man was naked and the woman was still wearing like a little bit of clothing that he was making them undress for like some maybe, reason. Like maybe the guy was, you know, asleep shirtless and then yeah. he makes them both pull off their pants or something like that. I don't know. That's really yeah. weird. So, uh, like I said before, Greg had no indication of being bound um, at the wrists or ankles, um, which I think we can assume D'Angelo probably used um, the gunshot to incapacitate him before bludgeoning him, so he didn't need to tie him up. Uh, Sherry was found naked, laying face down on the bed, and was completely covered by bedding. Both of her arms were behind her back, and she had marks from binding um, indented into her wrists, but the material used to bind her was not found. So, again, he took it. He took it with him. Uh, she also had marks of binding on her ankles, but the um, the binding material was also missing. Uh, Sherry also died as a direct result of bludgeoning. She had several blunt force injuries to her head, and semen from the crime was later linked to the East Area Rapist and the um, his DNA profile. Mm, yeah. And Sherry, at this time, one little interesting piece here was that I guess she had a 15-year-old daughter at the time named Debbie, and I guess, you know, she's supposed to be house sitting this house and Debbie and Sherry had gotten into an argument a few weeks earlier, as, you know, typical teenagers do with their parents, right? Um, it was over, I guess, a bathing suit or something. And her daughter got really upset about it and ran away and stayed with her friend's house for the last two weeks. And it was so heartbreaking to hear because uh, Debbie was interviewed and she was saying, you know, my final words to my mom were why don't you just stay out of my life and then I hung up the phone on her and I just thought the I last mean, words ugh, about the last that. words do you think about Not that I mean you really can't obsess over that but mm-hmm. I just that's ugh, I don't know it's one of those things where now every time I see my dad I'm like I love you I love you like I tell him that I never know what's going to happen. No, not at all. Another thing I found out today, actually, was that Greg Sanchez was actually from the Monterey Peninsula, which is where we're both from, our hometown. Mm -hmm. And this is super weird. I was looking at his high school yearbook picture, and right below his photo, Greg actually wrote the phrase, even lucky men die. That's super creepy. I, uh, to be so young and to write that and then later, you know... Yeah, and it's just kind of, man, it's like one of those things where it's like, like how the daughter, her last words to her mom are this and that's what stick. And then this guy writes this in his yearbook. It's just one of those, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't happen all the time. I'm not saying don't say things like, I mean, don't fight with your mom if you can, but it's just so weird. Really weird. Anyways, his last, so that attack happened in Goleta again, and now we're going to jump back down another two hours south or about an hour and a half south to Irvine, California. And his last recorded um, and final rape and murder victim was 19-year-old Janelle Cruz. This is so sad. She she was so young and just... I, mean, I don't know if you've seen pictures of her. She was really pretty and yeah, it's so sad. Um, actually, the police didn't link this murder to the other... Uh, one original Night Stalker murders until I think it was one of the later ones, like later 96, 97. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't connected, you know, until the full Golden State Killer, the whole strain until 2001. Um, 
But on Monday, May 3rd, 1986, Janelle's family, they were off vacationing in Mexico and she stayed back uh, home. She actually had, um, so Janelle had not finished high school and then she ended up later getting her GED. She had some troubled years in high school and then she went off to Utah and she did this work corps program and it kind of like motivated her to get her life on track. She loved it. She met great people. She was actually just home visiting for the summer and she was going to start at community college or she already already started her semester at community college. And she was working at a little pizzeria during the summer, make some extra cash. And I guess she had told her mom that she wanted to go back to the program in Utah because she just really enjoyed it so much. That's pretty sad, but she was, uh, she was home alone. And she didn't, she had not heard of the original Night Stalker or any of that. And, but she had this weird feeling that someone was watching her and she kept hearing noises outside her, uh, her house. And so she's just is like, no, it's probably a cat. I'm being paranoid. It's probably nothing. So the next day after she gets off her shift at the local pizzeria, she's working at called Bullwinkle's Pizza. Um, she's again uncomfortable, uneasy, still hearing weird noises, and she tries to call up a few of her friends. Like, can you come stay with me? I'm a little paranoid. Um, one of her coworkers, who's actually, I think I read it was someone, a friend she made from Utah as well. He agrees to come over, keep her company for a while, and while he's over visiting, they actually hear noises outside near the window. So they go and check it out. They don't see anything. And they're back inside hanging out again. Then they hear what sounds like either the garage door or like the gate opening. So again, they go back outside, check it out. Don't see anything. They're like, hey, we're just paranoid. It's just cats. Which to me is just, this whole setup is so terrifying. The The Golden State Killer, D'Angelo, he literally encompassed like every nightmarish yeah. monster you could think of. I mean, he is, uh, he, he's just the guy, like the whole phone calling people after he raped them or before he raped them with the threats, the night stalking, the staring at you through your window creepiness, mm-hmm. you know, coming into your house just like that. He was just terrifying. And Janelle, you know, she felt like something was off. But was just writing it off to, you know, cats. Yeah, which we all Listen do that. Listen to your intuition. Sometimes I watch yeah. too many, you know, scary movies and I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, someone's going to kill me. Mm-hmm. And I freak out and I'm like, hey, you're just being paranoid. Like, just, you know, turn on something happy and turn on the light. You're fine. You're fine. But it's just unfortunate that obviously she did not end up fine. Um, so after a few hours of this, it starts to get really late, and her friend, it's around 10.45, and her friend's like, I have to get going, got to get going home. Um, they end up leaving. They both left, which I wasn't able to figure out where she went to, but it is recorded that she made a phone call to a local frozen yogurt place. So I'm assuming either she went to go get some dessert, or maybe she had a friend there she wanted to say hi to. But um, she comes back, she's alone, and she's getting ready for bed. And D'Angelo surprise attacks her, brutally rapes her, then bludgeons her to death with, with his what assumed to be a wrench. 
The murder weapon was actually never found, which is, I think, all the past cases, the murder, yeah, except for the log. the log, which he had taken and left. Yeah, they hadn't found the murder weapon, and there was a pipe wrench missing from their lawn, which is super eerie that he is taking murder weapons from their house. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then taking them with him. Ugh, that's so weird. But um, they found blood on the kitchen floor, blood on the cabinets, Blood on the wood floor, uh, wood floor by the front door. Blood on the home, home wood shutters. They found blood at the head of her bed, um, and then on her body they found blue lint from a fabric, which they think was from like shredded fra- fabric that he used to probably bind her because he used to. I don't know if you remember during the rapes, the victims would say he was tearing up towels and sheets in this weird kind of like, I've done this a million times, this is my system. Um, So that's super creepy, but uh, they found pieces of that on her body. Um, She was found the next day around 5 p.m. when the real estate agent arrived to get to the house to to show it off to some people that were thinking about buying it, which is, again, another weird fact that this house was also on the market. Um, and as we said before, there was a real estate agent that thought they had seen someone kind of casing the joint mm-hmm. in a way. So I don't know if he was doing that before or something. But um, Janelle was found lying face up on her bed, naked from the waist down, and she had a blanket over her face after she had been bludgeoned. Uh, three of her teeth had been, mis- had been knocked out, and she reportedly has swelled a significant amount of blood. Um completely just horrifying and horrifying for that family to be on a vacation and and then to get that phone call and then hear that um i actually read a report that from one of the sisters in a news article I think it was la times the sister said we never stepped foot in the house again we had other people get everything out for us i wouldn't be able go. to either Mm-mm. no it's just heartbreaking Um, Apparently, too, Janelle had actually been raped a few years earlier and was suffering depression from that, which is why she didn't graduate high school. She was admitted into a psychiatric hospital twice, and she used to cut herself, so she had a lot of scars on her body from cutting herself, which is why she, you know, ended up getting her GED and was going to the job corps in Utah. She was trying to turn her life around and and get that again, so it's just terribly sad, terribly sad. Well, so pretty heavy murders there. Um, it's about 10 premeditated murders. Like we mm-hmm. said, he's he's guilty of 13 murders, but these 10 are the ones that he went in there with a plan. And you know one thing I was thinking about right now about Janelle's case is that I feel like when she left to go get her frozen yogurt, I feel like he probably got in the house and was, like, waiting for her to come back I'm sure he was watching them the entire time and maybe was planning on even killing, you know, the friend that was there with her. And then they left. He broke in. She was the only one who returned. And so he just, you know... Waiting for that. Waiting and went to, you know, do his his typical thing. And it shows again where he covered her face. Um, that, you know, he's covering them up. So I don't know if that is shame or what. Um, I was actually reading that in uh, the late 1970s, he called a helpline 
and said something like, I don't want to do this anymore, help me, um, but then said, I know you're recording this, and then hung up. So I don't know if that was something that he really did regret, and that's kind of showing it there. Um, but, you know, obviously after that call, which was in the 70s, he was continuing to do this. So And progressed and even yeah, got worse. Escalated a lot. Yeah, I mean, the so, and we're going to go over this um, in the next episode, actually, but around the time of some of these murders, he was uh, about to be a father, too. And so I don't know if some of that was like some triggering here with that. Um, and then and then the immediate feeling of remorse and shame and covering them up. I'd also like to know why, like I said, the men were naked. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's weird. So, <laughs> things we joked about, and I don't really want to joke a whole lot in this episode because this is, this is just terrible, but um, he has a small penis. And so... I kind of wonder if that had some part in, like, him feeling like he's not masculine, which is why he's raping these women to prove, like, I'm a man, I'm masculine, mm-hmm. this is, you know, who I am, and then and then I'm kind of like, but why, why are the men now involved in this, and why are you demasculating them by I think making so. them aware? Stripping them down naked. There so wasn't any sexual you know, actions taken with them. So I I can't say that, like, any kind of homosexuality plays a role here. But, yeah, there's got to be some kind of, like, shame or something. I think it was, like you said, he's trying to feel more masculine. He's stripping down these men. They're defenseless. He's showing them, look, I can make you do whatever I want. I can make you undress. Um, I can... I can kill you, I can restrain you, and then I'm going to rape your girlfriend, your wife, your friend, whoever that may be, and I'm going to kill her too, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Um, And I think that in the beginning, like with the rapes of the husband, I think there was this, uh, I mean, he'd always take the woman to the other room, mm -hmm. right? And then he'd rape them. So he never raped them in front of the man, Mm -hmm. which I also find interesting because it's like, is that he doesn't want this man to judge him or in some weird way like he can't perform or is it he doesn't want this man to get so riled up that he can break free I don't know it's really weird weird yeah, thought process I have there later. but yeah later you know he's he's attacking them in the same room but as he learned from that first uh, murder where the guy you know gets free and goes after him he's like I gotta take the man out because they're a threat to what I'm trying mm-hmm. to accomplish here so with these all these other cases, he's immediately, like, I don't know if he's tying the woman up first and then attacking the man or attacking the man and tying the woman up. I, I'm mm-hmm. not really sure. Obviously, we don't know what happened. You know, we, we don't know. It's all speculation and what the evidence can show us. And um, there was with um, Sanchez where there was no biting marks at all. Right. Um, and that, you know, that was And later. he's not on the bed. He's in the closet. Mm-hmm. But it, evidence shows that he was shot on his knees. So was he getting ready to be tied and then he tried to do something to, like, defend himself? I can see that. Or did Joseph D'Angelo shoot, you know, shoot him execution style but not really in a way to kill him because he wants to still get off by bludgeoning him? Yeah. So, because the, the shot wasn't fatal, but then that was also still crazy to me that he would even risk shooting a gun, knowing how loud a gun is, 
and then continue to bludgeon someone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think maybe he saw and he, you know, he was learning that before he had shot these people and nobody had called the cops on him and he had, you know, got away fine. And yeah, so he figured out, oh, well, I'll be fine to get out of here. If I shoot him, nobody's going to call the cops. Um, it is. It's really yeah. sad to say this. Like, obviously, so if I'm in a situation, I live in an apartment complex, and if I heard a gunshot in my apartment, and let's say I heard it next door, I, I'm i saying right now I think I would call the police, but then sometimes I'm just like, would I call the police, you know? And I, yeah. and I think I would. I think I would. Um, but it's just kind of weird to think that sometimes we don't, because I, I actually was watching a documentary on something else. It was a crime that happened in New York, and... There was, like, 30-something people that heard the gunshot, but no one called the police because they all assumed someone else called the police uh-huh. already. So I was kind of thinking about that, too. Like, maybe you're in bed, and you're like, someone probably already called the police. It's, you know, I'm going back to bed, or it's fine, or it'll be dealt with, or something. And how often do we do that? I don't know. Or, you know, even now, like, it is sometimes hard. If you see, hear a single gunshot... It does kind of sound like a firework sometimes. Or a car backfiring. Yeah, exactly. Or you're like, was that what I heard or was that something else? Yeah. So it's just kind of a weird, I don't know. It's terrible. Um, And, you know, one thing I'll say also about Janelle's murder is that it actually happened, I think it was five years, five years after the last, the previous murder. Mm Mm-hmm. So he had, like, a a time out for five years. And then after he murdered Janelle, he didn't commit any more murders that we know about. But he would prank call people Mm -hmm. still. You know, we aired one of his phone calls in the last episode. He would still do that just to torture previous victims. Um, So, you know, I don't know. If he just felt like he was getting older and wasn't physically capable of committing these crimes anymore, or he just got overtaken with responsibilities or something. We'll talk a little bit about it in the next episode, but during this time, he did have two of his three daughters. Right. Um, And then shortly after, um, a couple years after Janelle's murder, he had his third daughter. So it could have been, you know, it was harder for him to get away because he had children at home. Yeah. Well, we just want to take a second here to uh, move on and talk about actually how the Visalia Ransacker and the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker were all connected. And actually, you know, what we forgot to mention was the Diamond Knot. The Diamond Knot Killer. Killer. And the reason for calling him the Diamond Knot Killer was... The type of knots that he would tie. Yeah. It's called a Diamond Knot. Um, so they thought that was his signature um, tying. So I think no. there was actually two different... Because a lot of these murders happen in different counties. Yeah. So there's actually two names kind of floating. And then when I think the Galetta ones, they started, okay, this is the same guy. Yeah. And so the Santa Barbara County police were like, we're calling him the Night Stalker. Mm-hmm. And then they... Uh, started connecting the other ones to it so they kind of dropped the name the diamond not killer Mm -hmm. but for many years no one thought any of these were connected um and because because it's such a progression in crime and you got to think about the around this time frame too it's not like 
it's not like some giant database where, you know, today it's like a police officer can easily access information on a criminal and, and see what crimes he's even committed in other states, mm-hmm. which we see with like why Ted Bundy and other serial killers were, were a way to get, were able to get away with so many crimes because they were crossing straight state lines. This guy is crossing county lines, city lines, he's all over the state. They're still talking, they're talking more, but... It just, it didn't connect for some reason. Now, there actually was a detective, um, I think his name was John Vaughn, and he was from the Visalia Police. Um, Actually, I don't think he was a detective, I think he was a sergeant. And he actually had suspicions that the Visalia um, ransacker was connected to the East Area Rapist, but they didn't confirm that for a long, long time. Um, finally, in 1997, when you know DNA evidence is actually now being used and we're able to decipher that and connect that, the East Area Rapist crimes and the original Night Stalker murders were finally connected to each other. Um, and like I said, the Vaselli police were always kind of like, we think that it's the same guy over here too, especially because of really weird MO similarities. Mm-hmm. Like one officer I was listening to on some documentary, he was describing how at some of the crimes, you know, it was obvious that the intruder was eating things, which is something we have seen at almost every crime this guy has committed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said they found like traces of ice cream on the counter. Like the guy had helped himself and made himself a bowl of ice cream after he like ransacked the place. And I just thought that's so weird. It's so odd. Um, so it's one of those things. And the Visalia ransacker cases actually finally were connected to the Golden State Killer after they arrested D'Angelo in 2018 because they were able to connect the Claude Snelling murder um, during the time that Angelo was in Visalia area. They were able to connect that to him, and so they were able to connect all three of these aliases as the same, the one that we now know as the Golden State Killer. So we get the name Golden State Killer from true crime author Michelle McInera. She actually was the one who um, coined it after the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker were connected. Uh, She was more than just a true crime author. She was an investigator who would interview victims, witnesses, retired cops. Um, Since she wasn't associated with the police, she was able to um, have the freedom to talk to pretty much whoever she wanted. And because she tended to keep details about the investigation kind of to herself, didn't really put it out there too much. Like, um, a lot of retired cops or even cops that, you know, were still working felt like they could talk to her. Um, her work uncovered previously unknown clues. Um, she actually started to theorize that the suspect might be in law enforcement or military, which is something we're going to talk to you more about in episode three. And her website, True Crime Diary, kept the crimes in the public eyes. You know, this was a cold case uh, by the time uh, McNamara was right. looking into this. I mean, not a lot of people remembered they're it. Not, yeah, not a lot of people knew about it or even knew, like we said, that they were connected mm-hmm. because these crimes were committed in the 70s. They didn't connect it until the 90s. And here she is in the 2000s. Can you know what the heck is this and yeah, talking about this it? Going back, it doesn't mean that yeah. there weren't very active detectives and police officers diligently working this case like they were they were exercising everything Mm -hmm. they could to solve this case we'll talk about paul holes who was one of those detectives right um so it wasn't just you know a cold case that had been pushed to the back people were still looking um but she just had the ability you know she wasn't tied down by the rest of her job 
being a, a police officer, having to, you know, stay on top of current cases, she was able to go back and make these connections. Uh, she had her book, All Be Gone in the Dark, um, and that was actually turned into an HBO documentary this year, which is really good. Yeah, it's six parts, I think. Yeah. Um, she passed away, though, in 2016. She never got to see D'Angelo captured, which is really sad. It uh, is sad. And actually, yeah. if you watch the documentary, um, her friends and family talk about how she was so obsessed with trying to find the Golden State Killer that mm-hmm. it was haunting her. And she was, like, unable to sleep at night. Think she really... The, the thing that made this book so unique was that it wasn't just a a documentary or a book about these are the crimes that happened, these are the victims, blah, blah, blah. She threw herself in the mix and she compared how she felt discovering these things in her own personal mm-hmm. life stories and, and things that had happened to her and how she was feeling while writing the books. That's kind of just what made mm-hmm. it. She was very connected. Yeah. And, you know, she was very connected to the victims, too, so she was able to... I don't know. I I think when you talk to somebody who suffered through those things, like so in depth, like she did, that you take a lot of that on, like psychologically. So that's you know where she was yeah. coming from. Um, her husband uh, was actually Patton Oswalt, you know, the comedian, and he was um, he got involved as well, and he was the one who helped um, get her book released after she died yeah. and get the HBO documentary going. Yeah. Well. That is uh end to our episode here, or episode two, I should yeah. say. So that's pretty much, you know, a summary, the last episodes of the crimes that we have recorded committed by Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden mm-hmm. State Killer. Next week um, on our, our final episode, we're going to be talking about his childhood, his personal life, his arrest and trial. Um, we're going to be getting into, you know, what he was doing uh, with his his friends and his family while he was committing all of these crimes. Um, and remember to follow us on Instagram. Crimes and Cocktails. Crimes and Cocktails, um, where you'll find our recipes, um, information related to our podcast, and uh, you can interact with us. So if you guys have any information you want us to know or um, after you've checked us out on Spotify and listened, do you want to make some comments? You can DM us on there or email us at crimes.cocktails at gmail.com. Yep. Well, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you're enjoying your drink. We are. Um, well, have a good night. Bye.